Great, that's, that's good. Thank you. And um, I don't know about you, but I've, uh, this is the first year in 10 years where I've not been to Longthorpe Primary Nativity. I've done nine, I've done my time, I've done nine years in that place. Three for Iona, three for Alana, three for Joss. And um, it's interesting, the reaction we got. And I just want to say, I thought last week was an amazing nativity here. I really did think it was amazing. So, uh, and I'm obviously not referring to my own performance in that. Um, and the, uh, uh, you know, I know she's not here, but SJ did a great job of, uh, with all those kids. And uh, I also just want to say, at the end of the year, uh, we're a great church. You know, I think it's really important to say that occasionally. And I wish last time I spoke... I just made that point, that we do great stuff. Uh, we have great worship, we have great speakers, we do great stuff in the community. We feed the hungry, house the homeless, we do lunches, we do language stuff, we do community stuff. And I think it's just worth remembering that we are a great church every now and then. So why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, well done, just for turning up, you've done, done great. Uh, great. Just, I've always wondered this. I'm going to ask it to you. How, you know, how many people came to faith around Christmas time, had a sort of spiritual, seminal, uh, watershed moment uh, at Christmas time? If you did, just be brave enough just to put your hand up. Just curious. Was that one? Got one? Just curious. No, just, I've always wondered that. So now I know. That's great. Okay. Fabulous. Uh, the thing about these nine nativities that I went to uh, year on year on year is I obviously love them. And I can remember one year that uh, another dad, and you know, he turned up, or he turned up, and he goes to me, he says to me, oh yeah, you believe this stuff, don't you? And I thought, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna man up to this. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, no problem, I do. And we sat down and we sat through this thing. And as I sat through it, I thought, well, I don't believe that. Do, do, do you know what I mean? How far removed is the nativity that people hear from the stuff that's written down in here, and uh, I guess every year I try, uh, kind of, to break away from the demands of family life and just sit down and try and read all the gospel accounts of the nativity or the birth of Jesus. And every year I kind of think, ah, why don't we sort of? Isn't it a shame that it kind of gets watered out and edited out and and stuff like that? And I really want people to hear the real stuff. Um, so. Um, Anyway, that's just, just the feeling I've got. So when you think of Mary and Elizabeth, and Mary in particular, is this, is this on? Do I have to turn to it? Press on. We cannot. When you think of Mary, what image do you have? What image comes up in your mind? And what do you think of? What do you think Mary looked like? Um, do you think she looked like this? Quite a common image. A white lady looking quite demure, kind of quite weak. Uh, it's a common image that we've received, and that might have kind of inculcated or gone into our minds and made us think about, oh, that's what, that's what Mary looks like, therefore that's what a, a Christian has to look like. Um, well, what about this image? It's slightly different, isn't it? It's quoting words from Magnificat there, what we've just heard. Cast, out the, cast down the mighty, fill the hungry, lift the lowly, send the rich away. She's got her fist up and a fist of sort of aggression. She's standing on a snake. It's a very different image, very different understanding of who Mary might have been. Um, what about this one? Looks like a kind of revolutionary. And uh, then just in the corner is the word peace. 
piece, but feels like a revolutionary. What about this image? Different image again. Probably she looked more like the, uh, the last one. She probably would have had that colour skin. Uh, I doubt she had a Kalashnikov. They weren't invented then. Um, but it's a Kalashnikov or an AK with a, with a rose in it, which is a kind of difficult symbol for us to reconcile. And again, it's got the word peace in the middle. It's bringing peace. Uh, okay, how does that work? We forget, don't we, that actually these two women were growing up and subjugated in occupied territories, living in an oppressed land, in a highly patriarchal society. And what would they have actually been like? Why did God choose them? And where did those words in Mary come from? Um, and does that change our image of her? And who put out the image of the first one on the left? And who put out the image of the one on the right? And what are they saying? Do we feel slightly threatened by the pictures on the right? That makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. It's not contained. It's not clean. It's not controlled. Conversely, if you look at the image of the Mary on the left, I'd say she looks quite controllable. She would do as she was told. Um, and who put that image out? For the very least, she wasn't white. And uh, colour matters, actually. Um, there's a discourse out there, you don't, I'm not saying you have to take it or I believe it, but uh, that actually a lot of the gospel that we hear in Nativity is put out by colonial winners, uh, those in power, and um, they want us to hear a certain message. Um, listen to this, just listen to these words. Gripped with fear, you will be silent. Mary was greatly troubled. Salvation from all who hate us. Rescue from our enemies to shine on those living in the shadow of death. No room in the inn. Child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Herod is going to kill him. Herod gave orders to kill all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel was weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. He was afraid. The world did not recognise him. His own did not receive him. Any prizes for guessing where those words come from? All from the Bible, all from uh, the first words of... And very rarely spoken about... Um, because, you know, it doesn't come through in our nativity, but if you are growing up in an oppressed land, these words will be words of great hope for you. Um, what do we think of as Nelson Mandela? Do we think of him as a freedom fighter, or was he a terrorist? Um, he would certainly have claimed to have been a Christian, um, and maybe these were the words that kind of comforted him and stirred him into and strengthened him in his actions. Um, and yet probably the nativity that uh, was put forward by those in power, who were also Christians, would have looked much more like the lady on the left than the, man, the lady on the right. Uh, and these words are great news for, for those of us here amongst us and those in our midst, because there will be some in our community and in our communities who will have fled violence, who know what it's like to be oppressed, who uh, would understand Herod in a way that we perhaps don't understand Herod. Um, 
the poor in this, uh, in this city will often have enemies. I, I, when I read the word enemies in the Bible, I, I kind of sometimes think of people I have relational challenges with and try and understand it in that perspective. But I've never actually felt fear for my life or fear for violence against me. Um, but uh, someone said to me this week, uh, one of our ex-tenants said to me, when I was homeless and slept, I always slept with one eye open. Because I was scared about what the violence that might become me. Um, what about those who've had children lost, maybe to the herald of social services? Uh, a voice is heard around, weeping and great mourning. Rachel was weeping with her for her children and refusing to be comforted. For those who've lost their brothers and sisters in this country, maybe they are refusing to be comforted. And that comes out in drug misuse or violence or other manifestations. And so you see this uh, gospel is great news for the poor. It is good news for the poor because it says to people, do you know what? Um, God understands. This is a God who understands. This is a God who's here with you in your pain, in your suffering, even the genocide that you may have been through. God is in that and God is there for you. Um, and so, yeah, I... Uh, I uh, I'd, uh, this is a gospel I love, and I, I'd love us to preach this one. And maybe if we preached, sung, and played this gospel to people, you might find there's more traction out there in the community. You might find more than one hand goes up as, as people coming to faith at this time of year, where lots of people come to church, few people come to faith. And uh, maybe there's something in the gospel we can look at. So that's my first point, really. The second point is just to um, understand uh, the role of mothers and... Uh, uh, the Bible, again, the, the whole, all of Luke affirms uh, the role of women. Uh, it often talks about the women. It's a women's voice. It never even says the parents. It says uh, the father and the mother. Uh, it says Joseph and Mary. Mary is never tucked away under his arm. She's always there, right centre and prominent. And um, I went to a conference once, actually, but David Morton put on for me. And there was a speaker there, and uh, he came up with this statement that I've never forgotten. It was about 10 years ago. But he said this, that there was a, I don't know how they did this. There was, a, there was a study done of children in the West Country, and uh, they tried to work out where did they get their values from. And they reckoned that the number one influence on teenagers in the West Country in terms of their values was their mother. Was their, mother. their second greatest influence was their grandmother. Their third greatest influence was their teacher or a prominent teacher. And then finally, fourth, came their father. Right? Now, um, at this time, I had two children, so I was a bit miffed by this, I've got to be honest. And uh, thinking, well, that's not so much fun. And then I slowly, what I've realised is that when I consider the values that uh, my children's mother has, and consider the values that they were picked from me, I'm actually greatly relieved that that is the case. Um, I can't ever imagine Rachel uh, eating her children's packed lunch which um, is something her children's father does get caught doing <laughs> on a very regular basis. So, um, for example, so I'm putting point is here, the values of mothers and women actually uphold and played a great role in society. And I love thinking about that in relation to Elizabeth and Mary. Because what values did they have that God wanted to pass on to these two sons, uh, to Jesus and to John? Um, and I love the fact that maybe the thought that maybe God chose these two women out of everyone else because they carried values that he really wanted to be instilled on the son, into their sons, perhaps on their knee, a bedtime story time. 
So if you think about these two women, they were both actually uh, knew what it was like to be rejected, to be judged, to be disgraced. Uh, in Matthew, it tells us that uh, Elizabeth was disgraced, and in Luke, we're told that Mary felt disgrace. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because both their sons, when they met women who were disgraced by society, stood up to them, stood up for them, and spoke kindly to them. Uh, they both knew what it was like to not be a part of the rat race of achievement and success. They understood the futile fallacy and hypocrisy therein. If you think about Mary, she never got to finish her GCSEs. She never got to uh, have that golden wedding that she was hoping for, nor the honeymoon she'd always dreamed of. All of that was robbed from her. She had to go away and you know, have a different life. Then she fled and became a refugee. Uh, she, she had to let go of those, that, that rat race. Same with uh, Elizabeth. She never got to be the mother she'd always hoped to be. She never got to have that status in society of having children and grandchildren. Um, and they saw the hypocrisy that came with that. They saw how people judged them. They saw how people looked at them, even very subtly. And they knew what that was like. And I like to think they passed that on to their sons. Certainly you can see evidence of that in both their sons' lives. Um, and finally, just, I love the fact that Mary talked about filling the hungry. Um, and her son, of course, didn't let the hungry go uh, away hungry. He fed them. So I'm just saying all that to say the mother affirms, the, uh, sorry, the Bible affirms the role of women. And uh, if this statistic, this research is true, uh, women carry the values of society and have great influence in society because people pick up the values a lot from their mothers, a lot from their mother figures in society. And so wherever you are, whether you're a grandmother of 85 or you're a first-time mother, whatever it may be, be affirmed and know that your values uh, are really important in society. And whoever your children are, um, you know, God wants you to stand up for those values and you'll have great influence on your children. And as a son myself, I can say I'm never going to admit to my mother that actually her values are something I look up to. I'll never say that. Um, and, you know, I may, uh, may tease her for her values, but actually these are values I greatly respect. Um, so be encouraged. And uh, so that's my second point, really. And the thing I, thing I just want to just uh, unpack and talk about is this relationship between uh, Mary and Elizabeth, because it's a very cool relationship. And I think, uh, what can we learn from this conversation between Mary and Elizabeth? Uh, first of all, um, I think God often puts us with people who are different from ourselves, different generations uh, came, come together. He likes to sort of match people who aren't like us, and that brings something out in us. So if you think of Elizabeth, I wonder whether Elizabeth... Uh, Maybe she got married at 15, maybe at the time she got pregnant she was 55. So that's 40 years of a cycle of hope and disappointment that go round and round and round and round and round. And uh, maybe as good a Christian as she was, as good a prayer as she was, seeds of bitterness, seeds of resentment had grown in her heart. And uh, God put her with someone, think about this, who fell pregnant without even having to lie with a man. Like, how galling is that? And, excuse me, and maybe why God did that was just to bring a little bit of healing to that area of her heart. Say, oh, right, I've always, I've been judged by people, I've been looked down on the whole time, I've always resented people that fall pregnant quickly, and actually what God is doing now is just healing that area of my heart and preparing me to be a more loving mother as it comes around. And maybe for Mary, the reverse was true. 
maybe for Mary. She, yes, she submitted to God's will. She had the great um, privilege of carrying the Lord's baby and all that. But also, maybe at times she resented it and thought, oh man, I really wanted to finish my GCSEs and do this and do that and live a life and now I'm lumbered with this baby and I can't get rid of it. And Okay, then she spent three months with Elizabeth who, okay, maybe now she doesn't take for granted the joy that, 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 that it is to carry a baby. And so God puts people together, I think, often to bring healing and uh, understand uh, things from a different perspective and uh, break down some of our prejudices. Um, so that's the first thing I think is interesting and a challenge for us to make sure we deliberately get relationships with people who are different from ourselves because that will grow our humanity, grow our sense of Christ, grow our sense of love. The second thing is just, uh, just look at this as a mentoring relationship. It's kind of an in-word nowadays or a, just a friendship or a kind of discipleship relationship. Mary, Elizabeth, the elder one, Mary, the younger one. And what can we learn from Elizabeth? Uh, first of all, she was really grateful for this relationship and... Uh, are we grateful for our relationships? Are we grateful for our friends? Are we grateful for our husbands, our wives? We are very easy not to. Um, but she's really affirming. She's really affirming. Think about this. How many times have you as mother or father gone, do you know what? I really hope you are better than I am. I hope you're more successful than me. Not only that, I really want your son to be more successful than my son. That doesn't often happen, does it? The person I lie and manage at work, I want you to do better than me. I want you to be promoted above me. That doesn't often happen, does it? Uh, that's not a very natural feeling, and yet that is exactly what Elizabeth says. You, a 14-year-old girl, you don't know anything about life. I'm in my 50s, I know far more than you, but blessed are you because you are favoured by God. Blessed are you because you're carrying the Son of God. And that valley was passed on to her son, who said virtually exactly the same thing to Jesus. Um, challenge for us who are in any relationships, do we want them to be better than us? Do we love them so much we want the best for them? Um, whoever that is. And the final thing I'd just say on this, when we're in relationships, when our child crawls into our bed at three in the morning, do we think, okay, what is, God, what is the Holy Spirit saying? How can I use the Holy Spirit now uh, to speak into this person's life? Uh, when I'm in school and that child's a real pain and I've got to tell them off, can I connect with the Holy Spirit? When I'm outside on a fag break, can I, can I say something of God? When I'm in the dole queue and I'm speaking to someone, can I connect to the Holy Spirit and speak into their lives and speak prophecy into their lives? You don't have to do it in a weird way. You can just say, look, Lord, what you're saying, you just have to say just something positive, something affirming. Maybe you're going to be great. I can really see potential in you. I can see you've got great strengths there. And just the Holy Spirit's working through. You can be in a very subtle way. And you can speak into someone's life. And that's what Elizabeth did. She was a great role model for all of us, male or female. Um, and I just encourage us to try and emulate that. Um, and I've just got two more points you'll be pleased to hear. The, first one, the, the next one is just from uh, verse 60. So uh, what I've said so far, just to say that... Um, yeah. Remember, it's good news for the poor, this gospel. It's dynamite uh, if we connect with all of it. Um, what values are we passing on? What can we learn from Elizabeth and Mary in their conversation? And the third one is just from verse 60. And it's just these words. But his mother spoke up. His mother spoke up. Um, 
Uh, everyone's voice is valuable. I think that's what we're saying. I think that's what we're saying. Everyone's voice is valuable. You may just have a voice in the home, just have, but that is valuable. Uh, your voice as a female, as a mother, God is clearly saying he wants to speak through women here. Um, before I go on, I'll just explain, I'll just tell you a quick, a quick story about the Dinkas. Dinkas are a tribe in South Sudan, um, and if you're a Dinka boy age seven, you know your name, and you know the name of your father and your grandfather right the way back up your lineage up to Adam. So I would have learned if I'm seven and Dinka, my name's all the way back up to Adam. And this gives me great identity, a great sense of kinship. So if I meet another man, I can say, oh, you're son of, son of, son of, and eventually we'll find a father in common or a grandfather in common. So somehow we're related. Uh, once we were in a, a riot in Sudan, and someone calmed the riot, or tried to calm the riot, by standing up and saying, I am son of, I am son of, I am son of, and my great-grandfather was a great chief, and my father before that was a great chief. We are all one. And so your name is your identity, it's your protection, it's your passport, it's your kinship, it's your honour. It, it is so, it's such a powerful thing. And if you read chapter 4 here, I think 3, you see it's the same, I'm guessing it's the same thing in this time, because it just says the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. So they measure people's names through their, the, 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 the male line. Uh, into this speaks Elizabeth, uh, the female voice saying no. His name is going to be John. God has told me something different from this tradition of man, this patriarchal tradition of man that's gone on for generations. I'm going to speak into that. And, gosh, God spoke through her. So, uh, you have a voice. You have a voice in society. You have a voice in your home. And you may be uh, like Michelle Obama that has a voice read by millions. Or you may have one son like Elizabeth, but your voice is valuable and it's needed. Um, and the Bible affirms that voice. And it's never too late for that voice to come out. Um, how did her husband react to this slightly awkward situation? Uh, feisty wife getting me in trouble again. <laughs> you know, here we are, I'm in trouble. Really interesting to read because uh, they were, when she said, no, he is going to be called John, what did they say to her? There is no one amongst your relatives who has that name. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here, and the assumption is that Elizabeth knew the name of her relatives, right? She was, you know, she's, and therefore, what they're really saying to her, you may recognise this dynamic, is, you silly woman, right? You silly woman. None of your relatives are called John. How can this person be called John? Uh, clearly, she's stubborn, because uh, that doesn't persuade her, so they have to turn to the father to find out what he would like the name of the child to be. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote this. His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbours were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Blah, 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 blah. Really interesting. Uh, when Zechariah affirmed the voice of his wife, healing happened to him. It triggered the healing in him. And he began praising God. And if you read on, he then says some stuff that's recorded forevermore and encourages people in their faith. First of all, he had to affirm the voice of his wife. And that is a challenge for all of us. And I, I dwell on this point because there is a discourse out there um, uh, that... Uh, 
says, at the moment in our world, there is a crisis of masculinity. A crisis of masculinity. There are no good role models out there. Putin, Trump, Johnson, I'm not talking about politics here, I'm just talking about how do they treat their women? And where are the role models that we have from them? Um, if you look at Zachariah, he treated women well. If you look at well, the values he passed on to his son, uh, his son treated women well. He stood up for uh, women. And uh, his son actually uh, spoke out against a highly powerful man, saying, what have you done? You've abused your power. You've taken a vulnerable woman. And you're no doubt abusing her as well. He got silenced. He got put in prison for exactly that. Um, can you imagine Trump ever silencing a woman? How many has he ever silenced? Lock her up, were three words he got. Hundreds and thousands of people to chant. And this is no different from Herod 2,000 years ago. Powerful men do not like to be challenged. They don't like to be challenged in the way they treat women, and they portray a form of masculinity that is contrary to the form of masculinity you find in Jesus, in John, in Zechariah, and Joseph in the first four chapters here. Um, now, uh, before I, yeah, you can bring it closer to home. Um, and this point is really difficult for us to take because I want to say before I go on to this next point, uh, if you falsely, uh, falsely accusing someone of you know, sexual abuse is a terrible thing. I just want to say that. If you falsely accuse someone of sexual abuse, it's a terrible thing. Um, but if you have sexually abused someone, it doesn't matter what your birthright, you should be held to account for it. So, Prince Andrew, um, if he did sleep with trafficked women, uh, John the Baptist had the moral clarity and courage to stand up and denounce that. The royal family are very treasured, but uh, they're not, you know, it doesn't equal impunity. Do you, do you see what I mean? It takes real moral clarity and real moral courage to speak into these kind of abuses. And that's far away, and none of us know Andrew, I presume. We're not going to meet him over Christmas with those nice shooting parties. But, um, you know, we may have other people in our network who uh, we can stand up to, we can have moral courage for, even if they silence us, even if they prison us, even if they behead us. Um, uh, to bring it even closer to home, Restored or a charity, they recently did a study into uh, women in Cumbria, uh, the go to church, church going women in Cumbria. Uh, and they did a study on how many women have suffered abuse by their current partners. Now, I have all sorts of questions about that. Why don't they ask the men? How many of the men have suffered abuse? I get that. And, uh, you know, what does abuse mean? And, you know, which of us haven't suffered abuse at one stage, arguably. But, uh, nevertheless, the results were depressing because uh, this incident of abuse amongst women of church are no real better than incidents of women who don't go to church who suffer abuse, if you believe that. Uh, now, look, I'm not saying it's categorical, but it is a challenge to us all to think, okay, this isn't just applying to Donald Trump and Herod. This does apply to me uh, right here, right now. And it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Um, what I would say is John the Baptist is a man we can follow. He is a kind of man that I want to be. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed people to Jesus he affirmed Jesus as son of God. His entire life was about Jesus. He understood his connection to Jesus. And he uh, spoke truth to power 
even when that cost him personally. He lost his life to stand up for what was right, uh, to stand up for the one arguably abused female. That's the kind of man we can all aspire to be. That's the kind of masculinity we can all want to have. Uh, and that's my final point, really. And I'll just say one more thing, just, and this is a bit before I wrap it up. Um, I, I just, you know, if John the Baptist was here, he may say one other thing to us. And, uh, you know, he used the word repent a lot, but if any of us here are uh, having an affair or have had an affair, he may say to us, do you know what? Now's the time to stop. Um, and that affair may be with a physical person or it may be through your phone, online, with images. Uh, and I've spoken to enough people you know, to have a hunch that maybe this is silently eroding uh, families and marriages and so on and so forth. And uh, it's hard, but I would say try and stop it. And I think that's what John would encourage us to do. And maybe no one here, it may be one person here, maybe a dozen of us. Uh, but if that is you, maybe one way to try and stop it, because it is very, very difficult, is just to tell someone. Uh, and just say, do you know what? And just tell it. And then you're confessing it. And the reason you do that is silence have an, has enormous power. Uh, and you uh, break the power of addiction, you break the shame, the stigma that comes with some of this stuff, by being prepared to speak into it and just say, yeah. When you speak it out, when you confess it in biblical, you know, Christian language, then you... then um, you break the power. Both spiritually and psychologically, you've broken something. Uh, silence, shame, stigma, they all overlap, and they suppress it, and they continue it in any addiction or any major sin or whatever. So, that's it, really. Um, I just encourage us this Christmas to find some time just to read the Gospels afresh, to study them, to think, I want to be like Mary. I want to be that second image. I want to be like John. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Zachariah. And I don't, I think, I mean, I, I think Zachariah was a man I will never be. Uh, he's so far from me. I can't imagine Zachariah ever uh, stealing little John's locust and honey. Um, and that is uh, a challenge for me personally. Uh, my resolution for next year is not to steal any locust or honey um, and to be a better man as a result. And on this, I say happy Christmas, everyone, and God bless you, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have some great worship now from someone else.